0: From Psalm 62. I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will never be shaken. How long will you threaten a man? Will all of you attack as if he were a leaning wall or a tottering fence? They only plan to bring him down from his high position. They take pleasure in lying. They bless with their mouths, but they curse inwardly. Rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend on God, my strong rock. My refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge. Common people are only a vapor. Important people, an illusion, an illusion. Together on a scale they weigh less than a vapor. Place no trust in oppression or false hope in robbery. If wealth increases, don't set your heart on it. God has spoken once, I have heard this twice. Strength belongs to God, and faithful love belongs to you, Lord, for you repay each according to his works. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Jamie. The kids are invited to Kids Church today. My soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. These were the opening lines for Psalm 62 this morning. Now, um, I have the privilege of sitting with these psalms as we've been walking through them for the past since the Sunday after Labor Day, uh, five or six weeks. Um, of sitting with them all week um, in anticipation of, of what I'm going to preach on. Um, and so depth comes out of them in ways in which you get when you sit with anything for longer than a day or an hour. I mean, we, uh a bit of an odd thing that today you can consume content almost instantly one after another, so much so that you can't even question what you got right before it. Um, if you're thinking of TikTok or the local news or whatever. It's kind of all of those things together. The information comes so fast. So to then be able to sit, to take stillness, which I'm not always great at, um, but to be able to spend time with the psalm, begins to magnify it in different ways. And, and oddly, for, like, for Monday reading it and Tuesday reading it, there's times where like you can blitz through these things. But if you sit with them long enough, they begin to take on more and more and different meaning. You begin to see them in a different light each time. All of this is to say, um, perhaps, again, I'm slow coming around to these things, it would be wise for you to sit with the psalm after, not not think about what I preach, think about the psalm for the week after. Um, What might come up for you as you sit with it for a week? So this week is Psalm 62, but to find yourself drawn into the rhythms of the psalm as well. Because as I study on top of that, um, this week I, I came to this, this, the way that Walter Bergman summarizes this psalm is he says it is a stunning minority report. It is a stunning minority report. As you sit with that and think about this psalm, if you read it fast, it's a confession of faith, some sort of problem, similar confession of faith. um, uh, And then that that makes up what many of us would think like is a full psalm. This one even adds on top of that. There's instruction that comes out of the psalmist's journey, and that instruction contains two things at the end of it, that God is in power and that God is a God of unfailing love. There's really a full journey within the scope of the psalm, and it's if you sit with it, you can find your soul's own journey within the journey that the psalm takes you on. With some psalms, it's harder. (laughs) With some psalms, it's easier than others. And then you get confusing advice, like the advice from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is that when you're happy, read the sad psalms, and when you're sad, read the happy psalms. Um, As if Perhaps he was thinking the journey from happiness to sadness and sadness to happiness might be a round out your soul in some ways when you're being dominated by one of those emotions or another. Um, But the stunning minority report of this psalm is a phrase that stuck with me. What what does it mean to call this one a stunning minority report? I think it has a lot to do with what it is we trust in, what it is we look to, Now, I've I've been forgetting to mention the secondary text. We had two today, both from the Sermon on the Mount. Park read the one um, about the man who builds his house upon the rock. And that withstands the storms. One of my favorite parts about that teaching from the Sermon on the Mount at the end in that one is when the storm comes. So often, the Christian life or the faithful life is assumed as one in which the storm never comes. But there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus summarizes his teaching that says the wise person isn't the one who finds a way to go through life without storms. He says the wise person is the one who builds in such a way that his life is built upon the rock, which is these teachings. And that foolish man builds his house in the sand. I don't know about your um, construction skills. Mine are very bad. Um, yours might be better than mine. Actually, most of yours might be better than mine. But um, to call this psalm a minority port and to think about that teaching, and and Jesus' teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount is to the small band of disciples, a small group of people in the world that is now called the church, but at that time was called just this community of disciples around Jesus. um, It's so much easier to build your house on the sand. It's faster, it's more efficient, Bad things aren't likely to happen. Of course, they always do. And even at that, maybe we can just rebuild if it all gets knocked down, as if you wanted to spend your whole life just building and building over and over again what you might trust in. And that's the question of the psalm. Um, Is it you to trust in the simple, the easy, the fast, the quick building or is it to trust in building upon the rock which takes more time and patience and it takes faith in that there's a whole new world open because of what Jesus Christ has said and done to be able to do that? The second teaching which Brian read, um, that opening, um, if, your, if your eyes are dark, how much dark is the light within you, I believe, um, as Brian was reading that, I was thinking about the ways in which maybe the light goes out of our eyes the more we look at the light that comes from our devices, um, which is a weird inverse relationship that, that we lose the light that is within us as we look out at the screens around us and consume more. But the point of why I picked that teaching is actually that, that teaching about no one can serve two masters. If, you think about the way, if I think about the way I'd like to structure my life to win most readily, is to be able to structure it in such a way to win in both ways. To be able to keep on having my faith in God, but at least having a secondary plan. This um, is the most shallow of insights that can come out of this, but it's something I used to talk about with Kelly when we played fantasy football was, I never wanted any of the Bears on my team. Because if the Bears lost, then my fantasy team double lost. I'm sorry to Shelly, the Bears often lose. So it meant just bad luck all along. So I would purposely get other players, other, other athletes on my team, so that I'd have a chance of at least joy one way and maybe two ways if the Bears won. Like I said, that is the most chalice of insights to bring out this point, which is that's kind of the way I think we'd like to live our lives sometimes. What is the way in which I can have maximal joy if this thing doesn't work out so that this other plan can work out? What Brian read for us is that no one can serve to masters. Joy was never really there when I schemed that way either. When the team won, I was never really that happy. And when my fantasy team won, it was more just bragging rights but no happiness either. It's almost like hedging your bet cuts out some of your joy as well. Because you can never really decide which one you should be happier in that's doing well. Um, You have this way in which you're sort of negotiating reality in that way in which I think it makes it hard to find happiness. Again, shallow insights aside, I think we struggle with that in our lives. How am I balancing out um, the happiness of my kids, the happiness of my church, the things I can control, the things I can't control, and my hopes and all these other things that really have no play in my life? Just so I can say in some ways it adds up to happiness. Um, But the psalmist says, alone, God, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation, my hope, my history, my life comes from him. No one can serve two masters. The psalm exists as a minority report in the sense of the way that the psalmist is willing to say, he's proclaiming that that's where my stillness resides. That's where my saddiness and permanence is. That's where I, in some sense, belong This is that opening line. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, this is what's solid. That's rock. Truly, this is my salvation, my freedom, my path out. Here's my fortress, and I will never be shaken. Shaken's going to come into the next portion of the psalm where the psalmist compares himself to a fence that's being battered against and how long before he totters. But in God finds that he's never shaken. Now, what I love about the journey of this psalm is that it starts with the confession of faith, proclaims a problem, comes back to the confession of faith, changes one or two words, we'll get to that. But, um, it's a bit like our journey sometimes. Truly, my soul finds rest in God, and then something happens. Can I return to what I had proclaimed in the time when things were fine. Can I come back to that centeredness, that place? Can I find that rest again? Or, like many of us, myself included, that when I'm beaten about, when I feel like a cent- fence that is about to fall, it's often when I'm pulled to trying to fortify my sense with other masters, to build quicklier on the sand, or to be drawn into the trust in which the psalmist asks here. And that's where faith comes into the, the play here, is that this first announcement of faith um, is almost like a confession of faith in which we can say, but the second one is the one that comes on the side of bruises. It comes on the side of pain in which you've had. It comes um, not earned but endured, I think is the way that somebody put it. Faith is not earned but it is something we endure towards. And before we go on, um, this is one of the most famous lines in Christian literature from St. Augustine at the start. I'll say it both ways, Augustine, um, Augustine, um, and I don't care. Um, <laughs> this is like, there's, and there's no right way, although somebody will get offended inevitably and tell you there is, but um, St. Augustine, you hear it however you want, um, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our hearts are restless till they rest in you. The psalmist talks about the soul as finding its true rest in God last week I talked about the soul a little bit. I want to take a, just a short detour to go a little bit more into what the soul might mean. Because I think so often the, in the modern world we have this dualistic sort of mindset between body and soul. We have this way in which the body is not the soul and the soul is not the body. There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote not quote that you'll see online that says um, you're not a body uh, Uh, you're a soul or something like that. And C.S. Lewis didn't say that. So, like, um, it's one of those famous quotes that everybody thinks C.S. Lewis said and didn't. Um, It's like Abraham Lincoln said, 90% of what you read on the internet isn't true. Um, (laughs) The point being is, um, I wanted to sit and think about that because we divide it so easily. But in the Old Testament, in particular, the soul is your innermost being. It's not something separate from your bodily life. It's not sem- or it's something from who you are. In the New Testament, what happens is that it's used in so many different ways, you couldn't really say it's one or the other. And so it might be wise to say that Paul, the biggest user of the, soul, the word, but also Jesus when it's also translated life, um, are going back to what they've known because they are people who have come out of the world of the Old Testament. So while the Greek word has a bit of a different reference... I think it would be smart to use, see them using that in continuity with what they had learned and been taught, which doesn't separate the soul from the body the same way that we often do. One way I think we can say this better is that we are embodied souls, if you prefer, or if we are in bodies. You can pick one of those. I'm not, um, I think if you're like, I like the idea of separate souls, you'd pick one. And if you like the idea of embodied souls, you might pick the other one. But I think those type of phrases help us in the modern world capture something a little bit different. We are embodied souls. We are ensouled bodies. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein put it this way, the human body is the best picture of a human soul. There is no other picture we have of what your soul might be like than you just sitting here. Interiorly, you might feel like there's something else to you, but if I'm going to interact with you, interact with your soul. And this is, C.S. Lewis says this at the end of The Weight of Glory, is that in your daily life, you are interacting with souls, not just bodies, but it is through the body that we see these things. Now, there was some question, I think this is funny, of whether Wittgenstein believed in the soul or not, but there was, somebody asked him, if you see somebody in pain on the street after getting hit by a car, let's say, do you respond to them? Uh, do you know that they're, how do you know that they're in pain? They could be faking it. They could be doing this. And he said, I respond to them as if they're another soul. Pain calls out to him that there is another ensouled person crying in front of him. His point is at that point, when somebody's injured in front of you, you're not really dating, debating the existence of their pain, nor are you debating the existence of their embodied soul. You're responding to one who calls out to you as another soul in that moment. This is sort of a bit of what we talk about when we talk about the soul's restlessness too. I'm trying to find the exact place I wanted to go here. Um, This is from the book uh, Overworked, I believe. I forget that it's not overworked, but overstressed, I think. To the Greeks living a life of leisure with the highest aim of a human being. True leisure, the Greeks believed, freed from the drudgery of work, not only refreshed the soul, but also opened it up. It was a time and space where one could be most fully human. I thought of my daughter, whom I found one day sitting in a chair, hugging herself and smiling. I just love feeling my soul, she said. Don't you? The author responds, I think like I would. Most days, honestly, I felt like I didn't even have time. If, as Ovid said, in our leisure we reveal what kind of people we are, what kind of people did that make me? It's not that I didn't want to refresh my soul. I always felt too busy to get to it. Does it mean to live as ensouled beings, to live as embodied souls? And the psalmist phrase, then to find our stillness with God of that within us. seeing that, that as the world rages on, as things go on, we can, we can find our innermost being, this thing in which this woman's daughter is hugging, and find that our soul's stillness is in God. That is our salvation. That is our rock and our fortress. That is our sure place. To find ourselves drawn To God in that way. So back to Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The restlessness, this is the fourth century. Things have gotten so much better, haven't they? (laughs) None of us experience restlessness. What he says, and, and there's other translations of this that That I am unstable until I find my stability in you. That we have this ways in which we continually, I think, can foster the restlessness of our souls. Now thinking about that, it's a little bit easier to see how somebody could call this psalm a minority report. I've found rest for my innermost being. And you think, well, that's easy when there's no challenges, which brings us to the next part of the psalm. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down the leaning fence, this, this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Again, um, to think of the metaphor that the psalmist used, um, uh, rest, stillness, this thing leaning, falling over, rock and salvation, solidness, this person feeling like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. The psalmist, as often happens, leaves the threat somewhat vague, which I think is so that we can find ourselves within it. For some of us, that which um, makes us wear down, That assaults us is disease, is illness. For some of us, it's um, brokenness in human relationships. Um, For some of us, it is literally, and it's similar to what perhaps the psalmist is saying: those who attack us, um, those who want to tear us down. They intend to topple us. They take delight in lies, and with their mouths, they bless and curse. What they bless, but in their hearts they curse. They're those who come to you and offer you the promise of good things, but in their hearts they're cursing you. Um, that for some reason I, th- I think of advertisers. <laughs> here's, here's, here's something that will bless you for $10 a month. Um, uh, this, is, this is something that will bring about your blessing and your fulfillment. Um, And that's, I just wanted to take a quick aside. This book we're reading, The World Beyond Your Head, on becoming an individual in an age of distraction for people who want to join the book study, no pressure to or not. But I think one of the things that he's constantly calling us to is that one of the things that that we can understand ourselves as assaulted in the modern world is that we um, can't maintain coherent selves the way that we think we can. We're always bombarded by every side. And one of the, the parts early in the book, he talks about how he sits down to read Aristotle, as we all do. It's just normal for us to, to, to be like, I need some Aristotle today. Um, he sits down to read Aristotle, and as he starts on the first page, he finds himself saying, uh, the Sons of Anarchy is on tonight. It's, he's a motorcyclist. so um, and, and he should partake in the joy of the Sons of Anarchy instead of the... Um, Uh, The Aristotle and so he he gives into that but what he points out with that sort of small tugging in his soul is that this is sort of an assault on our attention all the time. What I think is even weirder is that like for my kids um, sometimes I have to tell them the show's not on which is not something that exists in the modern world. The show is always on. What is it you want to watch? There is no delay to have it, Um, uh, minus the the one or two things that come out weekly still, but almost everything is streamable instantly. But on top of that, I don't know if anybody felt this with the news this past week coming out of Israel. Um, Assaulted by all sides, on which side I should take, whose side I should be on, what's the proper opinion to have on this? Me, geopolitical conflict expert. Um, and second, as if it matters. Like, as if I come to the fullness, the wise position that would ultimately solve this conflict, nobody's taking my phone call to implement that plan. Um, but that's, I mean, we are under bombardment all the time in the modern world. I talk like this, and. Um, I wonder sometimes if I'm the only person who feels this way. I keep doing it because I don't think it's true, and I find other resources out there that feel this way. But it is so hard to maintain a coherent sort of self when your attention is being bombarded in that way. In the words of the psalm, it is hard to find your rest in God when you're being caught to think about all these things all the time. So, standing over there, I used my phone for lack of better resources to control the PowerPoint during the service. But I got two spam emails. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. What is that? Why are you bugging me? Um, I put it on do not disturb mode now, which I should do at the start of the service. But needless to say, even in those spaces, we can find ourselves feeling the vibration, and even worse, sometimes feeling what they call the phantom vibration. Your phone's not even on you, but you feel it, and you reach for it. Um, It's never happened to anyone here before, but I've heard about it. Um, I have friends. I have a friend who struggles with that. Um, uh, This is the psalmist. He's saying that they speak lies. There's so many lies we're bombarded by, I think. And one of the things, the thing thinkers I've become the most interested, I think Matthew Crawford is one of them, but there are several others, that they all they seem to do is notice reality and write about it. They believe what their eyes reveal, and then begin to talk about that. And that is under threat sort of in the modern world. To say what I observe, I'm going to base some sort of opinion off of, is, is somehow um, a threat to some other status quo to some other narrative we're supposed to be be believing. And it comes at us all the time. There's another thinker, um, N.S. Lyons, who writes about China and communism a lot, but they asked him how he became a Christian, and he said, I began to look at the world, and I just noticed so many things that were evil. So many things that were evil and being called good, so many things that were evil and being magnified. But then what unsettled me the most was that if I had a definition for evil, what is my definition of good? And he said that's how he backed into sort of re-embracing his faith. That's apologetic uh, Christians are, are slow to embrace. Let me point out you all the bad things in the world so that you might back into saying, I need something good. Where does my soul find rest? Psalm is a minority report. The psalmist returns to what he opened with, but he changes, I think, one word. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. Instead of my salvation comes from, my hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. The first instance, we had salvation. In the second instance, we have hope. It's as if to say, in the first instance, when we walk in our faith, We've talked about this in the way that we talk about faith, hope, and love here, is faith is based on the fact that God has done good things. The faith of the Israelites is based on that God had freed them from the tyranny in Egypt and brought them into a new place and extinguished Pharaoh. The faith for the Christian is that God has forgiven our sins, extinguished and conquered death, and calls us into new life in a new world. Those are the things we believe that enter in, that God is my salvation. It's kind of past looking. It looks backwards, which is a good thing. Um, Alistair MacIntyre has a great phrase that before I can ask what I should do, I should ask myself what story I'm a part of. My salvation, what God has done, tells me what story I'm a part of. But the psalmist, after he goes through troubles and trials, and he feels attacked on all sides, surrounded by lies and people who speak blessings but are meaning curses, says that God is now his hope. As if to say, in the midst of trials, I look towards the future. I look towards God's consummation of all things. I look toward that God is going to bring all of what he says to pass. That God is in the midst for the Christian of making the world anew. That what Jesus announces in the Sermon on the Mount is upon this new rock in which we can begin to build our lives in hope. So that when the storm comes, we find out that this house continues to stand. See, if he had said, God is my hope in the first instance, it would have meant something else. But he moves from, God is my salvation, this one whom I believe in and know in his past faithful actions and the way that he has redeemed and protected his people And in post-trials, I know that God is the one who will bring to pass the goodness that he has promised us, even though the world can seem opposite of that at times. Whoa, I feel like I'm a fence about to fall over. How long will they assault me? How long will it be hard to still my soul in God? You have to have hope from that position to find stableness in your future. It's not just nostalgia that governs him here. He continues, My salvation and honor depend on God. He is my rock, my refuge. So much um, permanence language and so much um, safe language. Refuge, fortress. In other psalms, The Lord is my sanctuary. Trust in him all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. The psalmist turns, now this is an interesting part of this psalm. The first two instances would make just a mighty fine psalm. Confession of faith, God is my salvation, I've had problems, God is my hope. The psalmist does here is he says, trust in him all times, you people. We are being invited into the psalmist's testimony. You people, pour out your hearts to him. We had St. Augustine earlier, um, he says that God is closest to us than we are closer to ourselves, and yet for some reason in prayer, I'm like, God doesn't know about this part of me. Um, I have a secret worry that God doesn't know about. I have a secret longing that God doesn't know about. I have a secret, like, with <laughs> pour out your hearts to him. Uh, Giving God the material to transform, if that's what it needs, is not hiding it. It's pouring it out to God. For he is our refuge. The psalmist continues in this comparison. Jamie's translation caught it interestingly. Uh, uh, You don't have it open, so I hate when I do this. Do you have it open? Um, that this this idea of uh, the low-born low are but a breath, the high-born are but a lie, is that we have um, this resetting of humanity here. And, and it's a great resetting because there are people I know who go, surely if I were at the top of society, I would find out the truth of how things are. And incidentally, the psalmist almost, I don't know if they had this at the time, but certainly there are people I know who think, Above the least of these, there must be a more authentic life than I have access to. What did yours say? Yes, common people are only in vapor. Important people, only an illusion. If weighed either of these, we find out they are nothing. And that's not to say that humanity in itself is nothing, I think. But to say if you're dividing of it is to say... Common people, got it. If weighed, nothing. Or illusion, I think, was that one. But um, uh, the highbrow, uh, that's a myth. Like you, we, we function in this world. And so, again, minority report of this psalm. To live and to find that new world born in which you interact with people as as not as where are they in this ways in which they can open doors for me but in which they are if they are weighed they are together are only a breath before god because we're not called and this goes back to that serving two masters thing to trust in exhortation or to put vain hope in solely good and stolen goods though your riches increase even though your riches increase which i i love about that one do not set your heart on them the psalmist is taking us in this testimony of where we can place ourselves, where we can find ourselves within this. He's, he's pointing out the ways in which these are not the ways in which the world works. One of the things, um, and so the question here is, is sort of what do you trust in? The psalmist on Minority Report sort of says, what, what do you trust in? Because it's so easy to trust in so many other things your riches increase. The next passage, I was just trying to think if there was anything else. Um, the, the, the chapter that Eugene Peterson, who suggested these psalms for us through a book, um, has for this one is unself-assertion. Um, do you trust in your self-assertion? Or do you trust in this unself-assertion which God calls us into? And this, this call to trust in God... Um, is really to set our souls in that still spot. There's a quote I've used often from Eric Vogelin that says, we're not required to participate in the disorder of society, but it's for every person to put their own lives in order. I feel so called to participate in the disorder of our society, though. Um, I feel so called to, to be a part of that, to have the news come to me about that, to know all of what's going about it. And believe me, uh, Brian will often say to me, Matt, how do you know about all these things before? I live under this tottering force myself. I do not come to you as one who has solved it. Um, But to trust in God, to have your soul find rest there, is to have other possibilities that don't exist when you're continually living within the disorder of the world. The last teaching in this psalm, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, and with the Lord is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. Power belongs to you, O oh God. Um, suggest to us that we don't believe in a fairy tale. Suggest that we believe in one who can do something about it. If we only had, and these things exist in unity in God, they're not two separate forces. Well, I'm feeling really like I'm dealing with the power of God today, but tomorrow I'm going to deal with his unfailing. Like they are a unity within God. One thing God has spoken. God is this God of power, one in which the world will be put to right. But if we have only power, it's not much to trust in. If you know somebody who only has power, if you're on their good side pretty nice. But if you're on their bad side, it's not good. And on top of that, what emotion dictates what side they are on? For the Lord is unfailing love. Now this phrase, Hesed, Carlo will pronounce it Chesed. Hesed, you know, I'll mess it up every Sunday. Is one of my favorite words in the Old Testament. Um, doing just a quick scan of, of how it's translated in other English Bibles. Um, with you is mercy. With you is loving kindness. An amplified Bible, which always gets to cheat, goes with loving kindness and compassion, using two words. Faithful love. Steadfast love. His love is constant. Faithfulness. With you who has power is governance by mercy, kindness, loving kindness, faithful love, steadfast love, constancy in love, faithfulness. Many Old Testament, New Testament scholars will point out this is the closest word we have to grace in the Old Testament too. With you is grace. This is the one whom he hears about. And to end... You reward everyone according to what they have done. As Protestants, we don't love this, although we confess things like this He will come to judge the living and the dead. He will come in glory again to judge the living and the dead. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Both the Nicene Creed that we confess during Advent and the Apostles' Creed that we confess in the other world say that there is one who is coming will judge the living and the dead. That God repays these things is the place of hope, too. The coming world that we hope in, that we can begin to live in and find our stillness and our souls in today, needs to say no to what doesn't belong. Tyranny, corruption, abuses of power, um, um, the bloodshed that we've seen throughout the world this past week, those things need to have a resounding no. No. The confronting, the conflicting forces in my own life that view pleasures or people as things just to consume on the road to getting a full belly which leads to emptiness to consuming more people or pleasures. Those things need to come to an end. For the soul must define stillness in God as to find the type of life in which we will be invited into someday. For so Jesus himself will come to judge the living and the dead. And this is this way in which the psalm asks us to look at things from the fullness of time. Not just what we encounter in the presence, but from the fullness of all things that will be. Which brings us to the end of the sermon. I just wanted to, Brian McCann, one of the commentators, pulled out this quote from a hymn, which I found to be very profound and very sad, but very self um, Joyous at the same time because it confesses the truth that I, it's an old hymn. I don't. Do you know this one? Anyone? They cast their nets in Galilee. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in sod. Yet let us pray for but one thing: the marvelous peace of God. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in sod. Yet let us pray for one thing, the marvelous peace of God. Let us pray. God, let us pray but for one thing, your marvelous peace. May our souls find rest in you. May our innermost being as it's bombarded, whether it be through illness or threat, bad boss or bad coworker, the continual temptation to participate in the disorder of the world. Let our souls find rest in you. For first, you are our salvation who has rescued us. You've invited us into a new place, a place of freedom, based on your rescue of our souls from tyranny, in Pharaoh's case, and in death, and what you've done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, too, you are our hope. What bombards us today it does not last forever. What tears at us, distracts us, and worries us passes at some point. Even if it is in the fullness of time, we're being invited into your new world, your new kingdom. Let us have our souls find their rest in you. Amen.